Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Tim Yoss, and I'm chairing this session. I must say, it's really nice, because years ago, I founded the Bath Literature Festival, and I used to worry about, are the writers going to turn up on time? We'll you know, all the practicalities. Instead of which, I have the chance to have some fascinating conversations with our wonderful guests. Um, this, I think you know, is the fourth festival being run by the London School of Economics. And um, first of all, I'd like just to introduce uh, our, our guests here. Um, some years ago, I was artistic director of the festivals in Bath. I'm now director of a charitable foundation. But I think I'm here because in the last couple of years, I got really interested in the relationship between arts and health. And I set up a charity uh, to see if we could move things forward. So I think it's an area which is getting very exciting. A lot of innovation is going on. Um, on my far left is Dr. Jane Davis, who is director of the Reader organization. Um, I love the mission. Our mission is to build a reading revolution. This means we work to promote reading literature as a vital life skill, to give everyone the confidence and ability to find pleasure in reading, to bring attention to the power of reading in contributing to personal and social well-being, and to build reading communities in which shared meanings can be constructed across social and cultural boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On Jane's right is uh, Jeanette Winterson, uh, known I'm sure to all of you. Uh, she's written 10 novels, uh, as well as short stories, screenplays, journalism, all sorts of things. But I think we're particularly delighted to have Jeanette with us today because of this autobiography which you've written. Um, it's what? not an autobiography. I knew I'd fall into that chair, but I thought I'd readily fall into it. We'll hear more about that. Uh, called Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. And lastly, on my immediate left, is Dr. David McDade. Um, and David is a senior research fellow here at the London School of Economics. He works in health and social care. Uh, he's a health economist and also involved in a European observatory on health systems and policies. So that is your panel. <laughs> so let me just set the scene a little bit, quite briefly. Um, I think when a lot of people hear the phrase arts and health, um, a lot of people think, hmm, that might be primary school kid pictures which are being put up on the walls of a local hospital. It might be someone playing a harp in a waiting room somewhere, that sort of thing. And I think for many, it's seen as fluff. Nice to have, but actually fluff. And what I'm excited about, and I know Jane is excited about, is that we're seeing a big change in arts and health. Um, we're seeing the arts as having a power, often untapped, to help people get healthy and stay healthy. Um, and if I may quote a snippet from uh, Jeanette's book, she says, fiction and poetry are doses, medicines. She also says, creativity is on the side of health. It isn't the thing that drives us mad, it is the capacity in us that tries to save us from madness. And I think also, Medical science is something which explains life, but an important role of the arts is actually to help us make sense of life. Um, and an eminent figure in this 
of the world, that is Mark Wolpert, who is director of the Wellcome Trust, he's very strong on saying that medicine is both an art and a science. It's not just medical science, it's an art as well. And lastly, um, we're finding that the arts can sometimes achieve what medicine cannot, uh, providing health benefits not possible or not yet available through existing medical interventions. And I'll mention one example. Um, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's disease at the moment, there is no medication for it, and there won't be for 10 years. And it's been a fascinating conversation that I've been having with the Alzheimer's Society about whether the arts have a role to play in Alzheimer's. And with the nods that I can see, I think many of you realise, of course it has a role to play, and we need to work out what that is. And so I think my message to you is that there's a new energy in this field. Um, there are signs, in, not only in terms of organisations like James, but the research is moving on a pace. Uh, and we'll touch on one aspect of that with David in a moment, about the health economics. Um, services, art services are being beginning to be commissioned by the NHS. Um, and I thought today, because of this panel, we would focus not so much on the whole of arts and health, but particular, in particular the role of literature, which I think is very special. Which leads us to the title of this session, The Medicine Chest of the Soul because this is an inscription above the door of the Library of Thebes in ancient Egypt. So, um, the format is I'm going to have a brief conversation with David, I'm going to have a brief conversation with Jane, and then um, Jane is going to introduce Jeanette, who is going to read. read. <laughs> and then for about the last half hour, we'll have a chance for questions, comments from the audience. Okay. So let's get down to business. Mr. Healthy Economist. <laughs> so the connection, as I've already hinted at, is that the arts could save the, save the NHS money. There are certain arts interventions which could save uh, NHS money. But before we go there, would you tell us what a healthy economist does? Oh, that's, a, that's, that's a tricky yeah, one. I've never too. asked no, you, so no, no, I'm no. quite intrigued myself. What, what, one thing I should say straight away is health economics is not simply about cutting costs and saving money. Okay? <laughs> because we often get a very bad press as being trying to save money all the time and uh, at the expense of good health, and that's not what we're about. What we're really about is trying to provide one additional piece of information to those people who make decisions about the way in which money is spent on the added value of investing in different kinds of health-promoting interventions or treatments or, or, or rehabilitation, etc. So that's really what we're doing. We're, we're, looking at, we're working with people who know what difference things makes, or what, what, are, what, is, what are the effectiveness gains, but we're also saying, well, what's the added value? Where, where are the resources coming from? Could they be spent in a different way that would promote uh, more health? That yeah. kind of thing. Right. So it's yeah. weighing up the costs and the benefits. Yeah. And an area which the arts and health people talk a lot about is well-being. In other words, health and illness, we're on the positive aspects of well-being, yeah. which in one sense is a bit airy-fairy. It's not an easy concept to get hold of. But on the other hand, there's all this work going on at the moment about happiness in disease, and David Cameron wants one, and um, I gather there's one already in Bhutan, a, a, an actual national happiness index. Uh, as opposed, so we have gross national <coughs> happiness as opposed to just gross national product. Um, is it airy-fairy, or, or can you help us in this area? Well, um, I, I noticed uh, in one of the national newspapers today, uh, the headline is 75% of us are happy. 
So that, that's, that's an interesting statistic in its own right. Could you still hands up? <laughs> yes. Mr. Cole, do you agree? Are you? You're not happy. Yeah. <laughs> James, what's the question? Anyone the news? Ask the question. Are you happy? Hands up if you're happy. Yeah. 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 About 60% are happy. That's pretty good. Um, I'm going to talk about politics. But, uh, but, but it is interesting that. Well, these people's horses from the Express. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the Express. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying I read that, but it's. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But, but, but on a serious note, there is a, there's an increasing recognition that actually health is not just about the absence of illness, it's about positive aspects of health. And this concept of well-being. Now, of course, um, there's a lot of debate as to what we actually mean by well-being and can it really be measured? Is it about happiness? Is it, is it about other aspects of, of the individual? Is it about the soul even? Uh, um, and that's a challenging thing. But there, there, are, there is a growing group of individuals, governments, uh, researchers, artists and others looking at trying to concept, not only conceptualise but actually quantify and measure well-being. And so this exercise that was published yesterday is one of the latest attempts to do that. And the important thing from a health economics point of view is that there's a growing body of research that suggests that being in a state of better positive well-being is actually protective to your health. Uh, there's research in the United States in particular on this. Uh, and and so therefore there's this issue about can you promote better positive uh, well-being, both physical and mental, and is that, in a sense, something that's also going to be uh, an additional tool, an additional armament in trying to promote population health and protect us from illness? So, final question: Take us, oh, start taking us over that bridge from health economics to the arts <laughs> and arts and health. Well, it, it's probably quite a long bridge, actually. It's a bit like the one from Copenhagen to Sweden or whatever, but 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 it's a very important bridge. Um, Health economics historically has focused on looking at drugs, devices, surgical procedures. We haven't dealt with fluff, as you put it, yeah. Tim. Uh, and of course, this is not an area, uh, this is not a fluffy area, but it's an area that has simply been ignored and not looked at in any detail in the past. So what we're trying to do is work with organisations in the arts, uh, the, the, the Getting Into Reading pro project that you're working with at the moment, Jane, is one example of this, where we're trying to quantify for the hard-nosed uh, uh, budget holders and policy makers and, and health scientists what the actual benefits are, the well-being benefits are of investing in arts. Actually, is it a better return for our money to invest more in holistic arts-related projects around literature, around performance arts, around the visual arts, than perhaps maybe to invest all our health resources in drugs and technologies and so forth? Yeah. Is there a role for the arts? And, I, and, and I'm biased in this, I think there absolutely is, but there is a challenge in building up an evidence base. And we can build up an evidence base to actually say there's a value for money argument, or is there a value for money argument as well, and that's our role really. Very good. Thank you, Dave. Wonderful. Jane, so we're going to zoom in not just the art, but literature and health. And I think it'd be really interesting to hear that story of how that you decided to found the reader organisation and how it all came into being? Um, there are a number of stories about how it came about, but basically I was a teacher in a university teaching English literature to um, adults attending uh, evening classes. I did that for a long time, an unusually long time, 
and had a lot of returning students, grown-ups in the thick of life, getting divorced, um, becoming ill, getting married, having children, losing children, um, having major life things happen to them, um, professional qualifications, loss of job, etc. Over a long period of time, I began to notice that, I began to think, something about what happens in the study of literature is connected to why these people keep coming back to the classes. It's, it's not an act, they don't just love books, there's something about um, what life is. And the, the big example I've got, it's probably not the one you mean, is Dr. Betty Ramsey, who was a, a retired GP who was dying. Over a 10 year period she attended uh, literature classes with me and lost her sight in the process, listened to every book we read on tape at home, uh, came in with it all in her memory, sat in a room with other people discussing the Divine Comedy, um, King Lear, um, from memory, and discussing it with the desperate, um, questing need of a person who wanted very serious information as she faced this long, slow, um, difficult, final, challenge. I thought um, other people need this resource, it's not just Betty. Um, I, I certainly needed it myself. Um, so a lot of that, and there are, I could tell you ten other people um, with stories like that. Um, one of them is in, in the book, story of, of uh, a lady who had been um, a, t a university secretary and who told us reading the poem I Am by John Clare, uh, that it was her favorite poem, that it had kept her going when she was a street alcoholic uh, in Australia, having lost her family, children, and farm, um, and that she had used that poem on a scrap of paper in her pocket as a means of hanging on to the fact that she had a self. I am, but what I am, none cares nor knows. Um, that's the poem. If you don't know it, I recommend you to, to read it. And there she was sitting in a room, perfectly well dressed in Jaeger, university secretary. She'd been that. The poem was holding those two different bits of people together. That's interesting and important one. So you brought this into me. I think the thing I'd love to hear a bit more about is the importance of reading aloud. Because <coughs> that, I know, is a very important element of the reader Okay, so when I... Um, was working in the university in these classes, we would often read chunks of the stuff out, uh, not the whole book, but often whole poems and certainly big passages to make the thing, as I've just given you in that first line of the poem, it brings it into the room. We're talking about those words, I am, even just those two. <coughs> Yet what I am, none cares nor knows. So we read it out loud. When I took it outside of the university, um, the first place I took it to was a community centre in the north end of Birkenhead, one of the sixth, the sixth most deprived ward in the UK at the time. Uh, I had 14 people, some of them were not literate. I'd got them through a lot of community contacts together, people who had never read a book. Um, so I thought, well, some of those people probably can't read, I'll just read it out. 
So that's how it started, as it were, by accident. But now we run 350 weekly reading out loud groups. Some of them are in London. Um, most of them are on Merseyside in the northwest. Some in Belfast, some in Scotland, um, some in the southwest, and, and quite a lot here in London, about 70, I think. Um, weekly groups like that. Why does it make a difference even for people who can read? Um, the, the immediate presence of sharing and experience. Now, for people who grew up like you and I, Jeanette, reading madly in private, it can be a, a very odd thought that you would share that very private thing with nine people you've never met before. And some of them will be sitting there saying, I don't like it, it's rubbish. And you're, you'll be thinking, my God, he's talking about John Clare, my favourite poem. And that's quite hard. But there is something to be gained from the sharing, which you will probably remember from your childhood, um, about sharing text in public. Because anybody who's had a religious phase of life or is still in one will know that that, that is... For many religious experiences, the basis of we share a text, we do it in public. Something about that is very important, um, whatever your beliefs are. And we've forgotten that and we've lost it with the with the bathwater, we've thrown it away. And you've another thing I know you've put a lot of emphasis on is is a sense of progression through literature. In other words, it's not just literature, but say a little bit about that. Um, I would now read almost anything with anybody to get them interested in reading. Okay, so that's the starting point. I don't know if it, it's really true, because a number of people say to me things like, uh, I like reading um, Jordan's autobiography. Well, I just can't bring myself to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that will sound snobbish. And one day, I hope I, I hope I will do that one day. A one time. But I can now read a lot more things than I used to be able to read because I do anything to get somebody interested. But as soon as I've got them interested, I would then want to say, I know a really brilliant book. And for example, I'm reading uh, The Mouse and His Child by Russell Hoban. It's a children's novel about a broken father and son, clockwork toy mice, mended by a tramp, set on a road and told, be tramps. They have to find or put together a home and family. And they have to become self-winding. I am reading this on Friday mornings in Chester Drug and Alcohol Service with a group of people, nine people who are recover in recovery um, from very serious drug and alcohol addictions. It's a great book to read with those people. This week, two new people came, and, and one guy who described himself as, um, used to be a chef, but now I'm a missing person, uh, said when we came to this bit about self-finding, well, that's what we've all got to be, isn't it? Yeah, but you've got, somebody's going to help you. How'd you get there? So great, great to make that connection. In the other new person in this group, sat and so we, I'm reading it and other people in the group read it out. This other new person sat all the way through with his eyes fixed on a point on the wall, looking like a man who's been sleeping in a car park for 10 years. 
bit dirty and pretty down at heel, very said nothing. And then when we stopped for the cigarette break, he then, sorry, health. <laughs> it can be important to have cigarettes at certain points in your life. Um, he said, as I said, well, we stopped for the cigarette break, and he, he said, may I say something? In this very soft Scottish accent. And I said, cause. He's, and he said, still sort of looking at the point on the wall. He hadn't touched the book. He hadn't picked it up. He said, um, I am considerably happier than I have been in a very long time to be sitting here. And then he did this gesture like that as if, <coughs> as if we were all at dinner together, sharing this with you. Interesting conversation with people. Beats sitting in your room listening to Radio 4 Extra. <laughs> And immediately another guy said, oh, I listen to Radio 4 Extra. And you think, right, well, that's there in a little human connection now. And I don't know where that man had been. I don't think we'd have got him with a sign in a library saying, reading room yeah, to discuss the mouse and his child. Yeah. He wouldn't have come. Now, you're telling us those powerful stories. I'm sure it's, it, it, it's very convincing that literature has a role to play in health. But how do you cope with a... A kind of medicalized world who are saying, you know, this is all just anecdotes, uh, and what, you know, where is the evidence that will be acceptable to the medical world? The evidence is somewhere do? in Dave's future. <laughs> uh, at the moment, and how we've done it, um, we, the readers are charity. We've turned over 1.3 million this financial year. Half of that has been earned in the NHS or from places like the Chester Service. So you're managing to get those commissions without having kind of formal, formal evidence? We're getting them um, on word of mouth a bit. Um, we're getting them because individual commissioners or even individual GPs or a drug worker sees it is working. So that's one reason. Uh, we've been very much helped by Merseycare NHS Trust, who took it on really when, when we had, you know, all we had was me saying, I think this will work. Um, their chief executive has been running a, a Get Into Reading group as part of his routine every week. He, I mean, that is evidence in a way that somebody in a job like that would spend two hours a week reading with service users. That's evidence. Just, just one thing to add though, but what we can do to help mm -hmm. is we can look and see, well, what's the story of the individual after they've joined the reading group? What impact does that have on their use of health services? What impact does that have on their everyday lives? Do they integrate more into the community? Do they spend more time in work if they're working? Mm -hmm. Do they get back in touch with their families? And, and it's possible to quantify some of the benefits of that. Can I give you one example of a cost I know? Go on. Do you want, or do you want it later? No. Okay. Let's have it now. Yeah. And then would you introduce okay. Jeanette for yeah. us? Okay, so somebody who comes to one of our reading groups is a, a woman in her 30s with Asperger's syndrome and a very serious uh, diabetes problem. She, they're connected because when she gets very, very um, stressed with 
the Asperger's, the diabetes kicks in and she has to be hospitalised. And about 18 months ago, she posted a comment on our blog. Been working with her for six years now, and she's fantastic. She's learned how to have social relationships in these groups. It's just a wonderful thing to see, but didn't know this. She posted on the blog, um, before joined Get Into Reading, was always kicking off, blood pressure through the roof, um, diabetes up, hospitalised, um, all the time. I mean, you know, talking about every three weeks hospitalised. Have not been in hospital as inpatient once since joining group. I think the cost of hospitalising her, um, or her not being hospitalised in over the last five years, probably would entirely pay for our work. <laughs> We'd probably save that much money on, on one person. It's enormously expensive. Um, so that, that would be a good one to follow up. I think also, though I'm sure Dave agrees with this, I hope he does, uh, is that probably there's going to have to be more imaginative measurements yeah, and ways of measuring. Because human beings are not built in straight lines. And this is not a question of I will take this aspirin and my head will be gone. Because we can't make those sorts of judgments. It's irrelevant. You can't evaluate um, how things work on a human being in that way once you get past a very simplistic level, can you? And one of the things that you notice about being well is that you often get quite a lot worse before you are well, certainly when mental health issues are involved. Yeah. And you can begin reading or begin any confrontation with an authentic experience um, and for a while be very frightened by it because everything that you've frozen away and put aside and that you displace into anger or into violence or into depression or into antisocial behaviour, all of those things then that you've somehow displaced, you don't displace any longer, but then they return to you. And that's frightening because that's when the monster has come home. And so sometimes there is a period, I think, whenever something like what you would do in a reading group or in any therapeutic group, any therapeutic work, where you will seem to be visibly much worse. And there has to be a way through that in order to get better. You know how in all the but in, in all those great legend stories, you know, uh, the hero always has to go right down into the depths and fight the dragon before he, it's usually a he, comes up and either wins the princess or gets the treasure or goes into the light. You know, there's, a, there's an important um, psychological truth in that, that we don't just go up from A to B. It's never a straight line, and usually we have to go somewhere <coughs> through which is deep and furrowed and difficult and complicated. We are complicated, and the tools by which we are often evaluating ourselves are too simple, and so we get the wrong answers. So from the coming from my point of view, I'd really be saying, well, can we, before we decide what this is measuring, can we look at what the measurement itself is and whether it's in fact suitable um, to do the work we're asking it to do? Sometimes you have to ask those questions, get behind the assumptions. You know, it's like IQ tests, they tell you so little. And what we're doing in this highly complex thing, which is the human being, is about well-being. It's saying, how can we measure these results? Uh, and that in itself is an interesting study, I think. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, and this, this complexity in the way which human beings function, mm. the impact of anything on human beings' uh, uh, the development and way in which they engage with the world, it, it is fundamental to the work we do. But it's the, mo it's the most challenging aspect. Mm. It's a lot easier to work out how many times people go to the hospital than it is to think about these complexities and or fighting the monsters as you, as you call it. Mm. But it can be done. Uh, but, but we have a long way to go. We do. My charity's had conversations <coughs> with the National Institute for Health Research and 
they say, ooh, arts intervention, how do we control for all the different mm. elements? Yeah. Ooh, this is a complex intervention, this will take years and millions yeah. to evaluate. But you're absolutely right. Well, of course, you could, mm. do, you could do an interesting trial, couldn't you? Could you use Jordan as the placebo? <laughs> you could read real things to one group and see what happens to them. You could read Jordan's authority to another. And you could read bits from the newspaper or the back of cereal yeah. packets to another group. You could have a great trial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you could wire them up as well and see what was happening in the brain while you're doing this. <laughs> and see what comes out. It would be good fun. Should we do it? Yes. <laughs> um, you can read the Jordan's autobiography. All right. Well, that's great. You want yeah. to do it? Yeah, it's great. Well, I'm not going to bother to introduce her because you probably have all come to see and you already know her. Um, it is Jeanette Winterson, and I, I hope she's going to read to us from this wonderful book, which I found to be one of the most moving, powerful, um, honest. Um, books I have read in my life, and I've read quite a lot. So, yeah, but yeah, I have. Yeah. So, how would you read to us? Yeah, well, why be happy when you could be normal? Um, isn't an autobiography. Um, I don't think it's even a memoir. I call it an experiment with experience. Um, because it looks at some of the territory that I covered when I wrote my first novel a long time ago, Orange is Not the Only Fruit. And in the search for my biological mother and a, a, a breakdown period that was in all of that, um, naturally enough, I had to reflect again on Wintersome World um, and what it was like living in Accrington with Mrs. W all those years ago. Um, and so I decided to, to go back to the material. In fact, I was rather amused today to see that the next hot thing in science is that they finally worked out, which is such a shame for scientists, um, something that the, the writers have known for as long as I can remember, that um, the act of memory isn't about going back to a, a fixed set point. It's about a continual narrative, um, a reinvention and a re-understanding of the self. There's going to be a book out in the summer um, called Inventing the Past and Remembering the Future. And you thought, did you never read Proust? <coughs> um, obviously not. Um, I'm interested, though, that the cognitive psychology has finally got to the point that we all knew that we are, each of us, an unfolding act of narrative. We're not a series of fixed points, which I think does have relevance to what we're talking about, um, certainly in, in the mental health department and uh, how we operate in the world. And there's a line in one of my books where I, I talk about that the best thing you can do is to read yourself as a fiction as well as a fact. Because if you understand yourself as a story, you can change the story. Um, you're not someone else's narrative, you're not a CV, you are an unfolding event operating through time. And that's very liberating, um, because by continually then it being able to both rewrite and reread who you are, um, you are, you become your own agency for change. And I think that's one of the things that books allows us to understand, and I'm sure Jane does believe this, I know she does, that one of the things you learn from reading is that the story is always developing, it's always <coughs> in movement, it's always in flux, and it's, it, it's relational, it's not about fixity. Um, and for me, that's very empowering, because what it does, it not only gives you uh, a place of, of, of self-reflection, self-analysis, um, a toolkit for changing yourself, it also allows you to look out onto the world and see how you might operate effectively <coughs> on that, instead of being just a consumer um, or somebody who is done unto. You suddenly become somebody who can do, who can also write the narrative, write the lines. But to do that, you need language. And, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts is that we imagine that a democracy of language is by dumbing down to the 
the lowest common denominator because we mustn't make it too difficult we mustn't be elitist <coughs> and we mustn't make people feel overwhelmed or give kids too much this is a complex world and a complex world needs a complex language it needs a way of thinking about it and a way of expressing it which is not simplistic because nothing about us is simplistic and I think, therefore, we need to give people back the language that they need to confront the society that we live in. You know, there's a bit of me cynically, and I'm not cynical usually, that thinks it suits governments to have a lot of violent, maladjusted kids out there, because then we can all say, oh, how terrible, more security, more crackdowns, see how violent they are. Much better than giving them the tools through education to actually stand up and challenge that wretched government. Um, those private corporations, those political structures, unelected, unaccountable, that stand in front of people. If you can challenge them, you're trouble. If you're just violent, you can go to prison. Why educate them? So that's, that's the cynical part of me. So I think that one of the things that we could do as readers um, and as people interested in the health of communities, the well-being of individuals, is give, us, give them back through us the tools that they need. And language is a tool that we all need in order to survive and to thrive in our culture. That's my thought. I grew up in a house where there weren't any books. Mrs. Winston was very religious, and she didn't think that any secular influences should fall into my hands. So there were only six books in the house. But in those days, there was also a public library. So I was able to go there, which was pretty marvellous. And Mrs. Winterson used to have a, a, a great liking for mystery stories. It never occurred to her this was a contradiction. So she used to send me off to the library to drag back her large sacks of mystery stories. And there, of course, I was able to discover that there were many other kinds of books in the library. And the way that I survived my childhood, which was pretty crazy, it's Pentecostal evangelists, we had a gospel tent. I thought everybody had a gospel tent. <laughs> It was years before I realised it was just us. <laughs> because when you're a child, you think whatever happens to you is normal. And I was meant to be a missionary and save souls. She goes, what she wanted. So I went down to the Accrington Public Library, and, I th and, and in those days it was a fully stocked public library, and all and English literature in prose, A to Z. So I thought, all right, I'll start at A. Well, I didn't know what else to do. But fortunately, her last name was Austin. <laughs> and then you get Bronte, and then you get Elliot Dickens. It's really good at the beginning of the So I'm comrade, so you're not very discouraged, you know. It's a bit soggy in the middle. You know, I had a lot of problems when I got to N and we were at Nabokov. <laughs> I felt very let down. But until then, it was an extremely good system, and the library was a place where I could go um, to find language and also to find a structure for my mind. You know, I think that's something that we really need. A healthy mind has a structure, and it's able to develop its own structures. But that doesn't just happen. And one of the things that we need to offer kids, you know, that, that amazing plastic brain, is to give it structures within which to work. Those structures can be rejected later, or they can be replaced, or they can be questioned. None of that matters. But the important thing is to put the structures in place at the beginning, um, so that kids in particular have some sort of framework which is both safe and challenging, but actually a little bit anal. You know, a little bit ordered, a little bit safe. Um, they don't want to run wild and go crazy. Um, they need something which, set, which allows the brain to develop in quite a systematic way, I think. And then the brain can challenge its own structures. And that, that's powerful. So that's what I was able to do um, in, the, in the library. And I will, I'll read you a little bit about what happened. Um, this, was, this was what our life was like. 
My mother was in charge of language. My father had never really learned to read. He could manage slowly with his finger on the line, but he'd left school at 12 and gone to work at the Liverpool docks. And before he was 12, no one had bothered to read to him. His own father had been a drunk who often took his small son to the pub with him and left him outside and staggered out hours later and walked home and forgot my dad, who was asleep in a doorway. Dad loved Mrs. Winterson reading out loud, and I did too. She always stood up while we two sat down, and it was intimate and impressive all at the same time. She read the Bible every night for half an hour, starting at the beginning and making her way through all 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And when she got to her favourite bit, the book of Revelation and the Apocalypse, and everyone being exploded and the devil in the bottomless pit, she gave us all a week off to think about things. <laughs> and then she started again, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It seemed to me to be a lot of work to make a whole planet, a whole universe, and blow it up later. <laughs> but that is one of the problems with literal-minded versions of Christianity. And why look after the planet at all when you know it's all going to end in bits? <laughs> My mother was a good reader, confident and dramatic. She read the Bible as though it had just been written, and perhaps it was like that for her. And I got a sense early on that the power of a text is not time-bound. The words go on doing their work. Working-class families in the north of England in the 1960s used to hear the 1611 Bible regularly at church and at home. And as there was still a thee and a thou or a that in daily speech for us, the language didn't seem too difficult. And I especially liked the quick and the dead. You really get a feel for the difference if you live in a house with mice and a mouse trap. So <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Winston was one of the people who used to, used to explain the flash dash and mice activity in the kitchen as ectoplasm. <laughs> Other people have mice we had ectoplasm. What's that? What's that? <laughs> In the 1960s, many men, and they were men, not women, attended evening classes at the Working Men's Institutes or the Mechanics Institutes, another of those progressive initiatives coming out of Manchester. And the idea of bettering yourself was not seen as elitist then, and neither was it assumed that all values are relative and that all culture is more or less identical, whether it's Hammer Horror or Shakespeare. Those evening classes were big on Shakespeare, and none of the men ever complained that the language was difficult. Why not? Because it wasn't difficult. It was, the version, it was the language of the 1611 Bible. The King James Version appeared in the same year as the first advertised performance of The Tempest, and Shakespeare wrote The Winter's Tale in 1611. It was a useful continuity, destroyed by the well-meaning, well-educated types who didn't think of the consequences for the wider culture to have modern Bibles with the language stripped out. The consequence was that uneducated men and women, men like my father and kids like me in ordinary schools, had no more easy everyday connection to 400 years of the English language. A lot of older people that I knew, my parents' generation, quoted Shakespeare and the Bible, and sometimes the metaphysical poets like John Donne, without knowing the source or misquoting and mixing. And my mother, being apocalyptic by nature, 
like to greet any news of either calamity or good fortune with the line, ask not for whom the bell tolls. <laughs> <laughs> and this was delivered in a suitably sepulchral tone. As evangelical churches don't have any bells, I never understood that it was about death. And certainly not until I got to Oxford did I find that it was a misquote from the prose passage of John Donne, the one that begins, no man is an island, an entire of itself, and that ends, never sent to know for whom the bell tolls. Once my dad won the works raffle, he came home very pleased with himself, and my mother asked him what was the prize. Oh, 50 pounds and two boxes of wagon wheels. These were large, horrible, chocolate-style biscuits with a wagon and a cowboy on the raffle. My mother did not reply, so my dad pressed on, that's good, Connie, are you glad? She said, ask not for whom the bell tolls. <laughs> said he didn't like the look of it, which was unsurprising as the oven and the wall were black. <laughs> Mrs. Winston replied, it's a fault to heaven, a fault against the dead, and a fault to nature. And that is a heavy load for a gas oven. <laughs> she liked that phrase, and it was more than once used towards me. When some well-wisher asked how I was, Mrs. Winston looked down and sighed, she's a fault to heaven, a fault against the dead, and a fault to nature. <laughs> worse for me than it had been for the oven. <laughs> I was particularly worried about the dead part and wondered which buried and unfortunate relative I had so offended. Later I found the lines in Hamlet. A general phrase for her and others when making an unfavourable comparison was to say, as a crab's like an apple. And that's the fool in King Lear. Yet it has a northern ring to it, partly I think because a working class tradition is an oral tradition, not a bookish one. But its richness of language comes from absorbing some of those classics in school, and they all learned by rote, and by creatively using language to tell a good story. I think back, and I realise that our stock of words was not small, and we loved images. Until the 80s, visual culture, TV culture, mass culture, had not made that much of an impact on North, and there was a still strong local culture and a powerful dialect. I left in 1979, and it was not so much different from 1959. But by 1990, when we went back to film Oranges and Not the Only Fruit for the BBC, it was totally different. So that's how it was for us, just to give you a, a, a little idea. I don't know if you coming on anything there, Jane. You don't have to. Well, well I, did, I wrote down create, creatively using language to tell a good story. Um, I just, into my mind flashed, you know, I grew up in a pub. Um, exactly what you described used to happen, and that guys who'd been out to sea would come back and could. There was John, John Don, John Dun John, who could recite all of John Dun because he took it to sea with him. Uh, people did know lines from Shakespeare, and it would be used in the rough and tumble of the pub. And I think, in a weird, funny way, that's what I created in getting to reading. It's like a pub. Uh, anybody can come in. Uh, does not drink. You really have toast and tea, but uh, but that is what it's like. It's like what pubs used well, to. Well, maybe be. this is how we're going to revive the pubs. Yes, yeah, so bring the pubs <laughs> very good. Yeah, all going out of business. Maybe we can put some. Oh, then that'd be a problem with the health pubs. Then they'd all get a serious to the liver. You yeah. can have the library in the pub. I mean, some village pubs. Yeah. 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 Ye
Yeah, I was just in a library in Amsterdam. I was very excited about it because <coughs> the libraries are all supposed to be on the way out. Um, in the counterintuitive way in Amsterdam, they've just built a new library near the railway station. It's a fabulous building. And it's, they did it because they wanted to make it a, 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 the heart of a community. And it's worked because you go in on the ground floor and all the kids go there after school. It's really cool. Um, so they've got all the computer terminals down there and places to read, all the newspapers, magazines, comics as well. Lots of stuff for teenage boys to read too, as well as teenage girls. So you go in sofas, all big and squashy, really welcoming. So all the kids go there because it's great and you can get coffee and stuff and it's cheap. And then there's a fantastic glass escalator which goes up and up and up. And as you go up, of course, it gets quieter and quieter and one more cathedral. So then the books begin. And then kids go up one floor to do their homework quietly. And then there are the activities on the middle floor where there will be reading groups or something happening. Um, and it was full. I kept going back there every day at different points just to see. Um, and everybody, old people, young people, were using that library in an absolutely new and different way. Wasn't some miserable old dump, you know, with all the books stripped out and a ton of CDs. Well, that was what was particularly telling in what you read that English literature A to Z was in Accrington Library. It was. And if you go in now, and I have been in Accrington Library, you won't find English literature A to Z in there. No, no. You will find probably quite a few copies of Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> so you couldn't do it. Obviously, that would be a problem. You couldn't do what I did. You couldn't just go in there because you bonk his mother and send you down. Um, and work out that you could read your way through the shelves and then find from there some real clarity. I mean, there's a point where um, Mrs. Winterson had thrown me out um, and it was for, for having sex with another girl because you weren't supposed to have sex with anybody, let alone a member of your own sex. And this was very bad. Um, and I was in despair because uh, if you're adopted, uh, you always blame yourself. And so it was another failure. And I'd gone down there to get her usual stash of murder mysteries. And she'd ordered one called Murder in the Cathedral. <laughs> she thought, I tell it, she thought it was some sort of um, story, a homicide story about monks, and she liked anything that was bad for the Pope. <laughs> and I've never heard of T.S. Eliot. I thought you might be related to George. I was only six I got this out, and I knew it was a bit thin, and I, mystery stories were usually fatter, so I thought something's wrong. Maybe somebody's torn some pages. And then I realised it was written in verse, and I'm definitely not right. Uh, this can't be a mystery story. So I started reading it, and I opened it. You know, the books always find you, even if you don't always find the books. And I opened it, and I read, just opened it to line which said, This is one moment, but know that another shall pierce you with a sudden painful joy. And... I loved that line at that moment. I went and sat on the steps and, and, and cried and read it in the usual northern gale. And I'd never read this person before, I didn't know who he was. But it gave me, at that moment, it gave me shape and it made sense and it felt like I'd found a friend. Mm -hmm. It was a voice across time, somebody speaking to me when nobody else was going to, nobody else could help me, and my mind was just a confusion. Um, and you know, one of the things I think poetry does, which is odd, and it's why I always read it out loud, I think Janice is, you know when stuff's going round and round in your head, and your, your head is full, you can't think straight, your thoughts are a jumble, um, it, you, you've gone sort of schizophrenic in your brain. If you say some lines of poetry out loud to yourself, the strength and the power of that voice, those lines, will immediately cut through the static and the noise in your own head and calm you down. When I had a breakdown, I was going bonkers. There were times when I couldn't do anything. I used to stand in the mirror and I'd start reciting poetry. I know a lot of poetry. Um, and gradually I'd see my face change. I'd see my expression calm down. I'd feel my heart beat lower. Um, 
and I would be then my own thoughts could come back, speaking under and through the quietly this the strong, persuasive, gentle, healing voice of the poem, using my voice. It was you know it was also like being possessed by something, but in a very good way, um, and that worked every time. This you're you're talking about structure for my mind. Um, and I've heard somebody else describe that when I went to pitch to Mersey Care NHS just the very first time. They had invited a, a service user, patient, he, he said, I call myself a patient. Uh, but they called him a service user um, uh, to, along, and it was because he was interested in literature. He'd been an English teacher, he'd had a massive breakdown. He said to me, I will never work again. Uh, later on in this meeting, I wanted to read this poem out, and I thought, oh, bloody hell, he's brought his own poems. <laughs> and, and I was really, really, really frustrated and annoyed. I didn't even look at it. And then at some point in this meeting with head of nursing, head of blah, head of patients and service users, he, he said, we're going to read that poem now. And so I had to say yes. And when I, I picked it out, it was Jared Manley Hopkins, no worst, there is none. Um, I don't know if you know that poem, I, if I can pull it back, but the mind has mountains, sheer, no man fathered, hold, it, hold them cheap, may who ne'er hung there. It's got that, those two lines in the middle of it anyway. And I had to read it out, in, and this man was just staring at me, and the director of nursing got tears in her eyes as I read. It was like having this huge thing had come into the room. And he then said when I finished, yes, he's got it down in order. Sometimes I'm on the bus, I have it taped to the back of my diary, and if it's very bad, I just get it out and I say to myself, yes, he's got it in order. Mm. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And it obviously does have, you know, it, it has a slightly hypnotic and, and sedative effect because you've got the, you've got the, the efficacy of the rhyme um, working in the way that it goes on as it can't help but to do that. But also it's saying something which is real, so you're not just chanting on, you know, you're saying something which, which is, is, is adding meaning to a situation which has become chaotic and meaningless. Even if the meaning is painful, yeah, you know, matter. the mind has mountains. Yeah. Sheer, right. no man fathomed. And I think that, does, that is what happens with reading out loud, that it does, I think it, it, it has a faster effect. Um, it, it's, it's intravenous. Um, it'll, ju it'll just hit the bloodstream quicker, won't it? Uh, and make a difference in a way that just reading silently, running your eyes across the page, doesn't always. Because that doesn't stop the noises in your head. You know, you can just be distracted immediately. You cannot be distracted if you are reading out loud. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that really good bit in the King's speech where he, get, he stops his stammer by getting him to speak above the music? And it's the one, what are you doing? I think you're cheating the brain in some way, and the brain mm -hmm. has to reconfigure and think, hold on, something else is happening. I can't, I, I, this is most important, this is at the top. And it works. I absolutely promise you it works. And you can, you can, this is sort of a trial you could all try. It's cheap, and you can see the effects straight away. Stand in front of the mirror. Look, if you know, only, even if it's only four lines, say a poem to yourself. It's a good way of learning a poem as well. Watch what happens to your face, to your expression, as you recite this poem back to yourself in the mirror. 
And you can do a you can do a control test, do it when you're happy, do it when you're miserable, you know, and, and just jot it down. It is really fascinating. I spent a lot of time doing this. And then email the results to me, Jane Davis, You know, the things we can do that can see we can see those effects straight away. And I think that does make a huge difference. Would you like to read it? Yeah, I'll give you a bit more from the, the live, and then that'll be the end of that. So I was very fortunate when I left home, because for a while I, I slept in a mini. Um, and should this ever happen to you, I can tell you how to do it, because there's a system. Um, what you must do if you ever have to live in a car is you must um, eat and read in the front of the car only and you must sleep in the back and keep everything neatly in the boot. <laughs> because that way you don't feel like you're a homeless person living in a car. Yeah, it sounds like living in a, in a house. Yeah, and you've got a you know, and you, think, you, can, and you move seats as well, that's quite important. So I used to eat in the passenger seat, but I would read in the driving seat. <laughs> so that and I would get out and open the door and go around. You know, so that keeps dignity. Um, and also it's imposing your own structure on a, on a chaotic situation. Um, I find that work very well. So let, do let me know if you ever have find yourself in that situation. So this is where um, I'm in the library, I'm reading my way through and this is about the Accrington Public Library. The Accrington Public Library ran on the Dewey Decimal System which meant that books were meticulously catalogued except for pulp fiction which everybody despised. So romance was just given a pink strip and all romance was simply chucked unalphabetically onto the romance shelves. <laughs> and sea stories were treated in the same way, but with a green strip. And horror had a black strip. Mystery stories, schlock style, had a white strip. But the librarian would never file Chandler or Highsmith under mystery. They were literature, just as Moby Dick was not a sea story, and Jane Eyre was not romance. Humour had a section too, with a wavy orange giggle strip. And on the humorous shelves, I'll, I'll never know how or why, was Gertrude Stein. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably because what she wrote looked like nonsense. <laughs> so here I am down there. I was helping the librarian shelve the books, and something I really like to do is I like the weight of the books and the way they slotted onto the shelves. She gave me the pile of orange giggle strip humor, and that's when I first noticed Gertrude Stein I thought you were on N, said the librarian, who, like most librarians, believed in alphabetical order. Well, I am, but I'm having a little look around, too. <laughs> My English teacher told me to do that, and she says that Mrs. Oliphant is not literature, and she's coming up soon. The librarian raised her eyebrows. She said, I do not disagree with her, but can we really leap from N to P? She said, yet there are difficulties with the letter O. Well, there were difficulties with the letter N. <laughs> yes, said the librarian. English literature, perhaps all literature, is never what we expect and not always what we enjoy. I myself had great difficulties with the letter C. <laughs> Lewis Carroll, Joseph Conrad, Coleridge. <laughs> it was always a mistake to argue with the librarian. But before I could stop myself, I started to recite, it were a vain endeavour, though I should gaze forever on that green light that lingers in the west. I may not hope, 
from outward forms to win the passion and the life whose fountains lie within. Always love them. The librarian regarded me. That is very beautiful. It's Coleridge. Dejection, an ode. Well, said the librarian, perhaps I shall have to reconsider the letter C. <laughs> Will I have to reconsider the letter N? My advice is this, she said, when you are young and you read something you very much dislike, put it aside and read it again three years later. And if you still dislike it, read it again in a further three years. And when you are no longer young, when you are 50 as I am, read again the thing that you disliked most of all. Well, that'll be Lolita then. <laughs> she smiled, which was, which was unusual. And I picked up my pile of books for shelving. The library was quiet. It, it was busy, but it was quiet. And I thought, it must be like this in a monastery where you had company and sympathy, but your thoughts were your own. I looked up at the enormous stained glass window and the beautiful oak staircase. I loved this building. The librarian was explaining the benefits of the Dewey Decimal System to her junior. Benefits that extended to every area of life. It was orderly, like the universe. It had logic. It was dependable. Using it allowed a kind of moral uplift, as one's own chaos was brought under control. Whenever I am troubled, said the librarian, I think about the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> Then what happens, said her junior, who was rather overawed. Well, then I understand that trouble is just something that has been filed in the wrong place. <laughs> that is what Jung was explaining, of course, as the chaos of our unconscious contents strive to find their rightful place in the index of consciousness. The junior was silent. I said, who's Jung? That is not for now. Of the library. <laughs> in, any, in any case, it's not English literature A to Z. You would have to go to psychoanalysis over there by psychology and religion. I looked. The only two people who ever went near psychology and religion were a man with a ponytail who wore a t shirt, very dirty, that said ego on one side and eat on the other. <laughs> and a pair of women who were pretending to be witches and were researching wicker in our time. <laughs> All three of them were there, passing notes to one another as they weren't allowed to speak. <laughs> Young could wait. Well, who was Gertrude Stein? A modernist. She wrote without regard to meaning. Oh, is that why she's under humour with Spike Milligan? <laughs> Within the Dewey Decimal System, there is a certain amount of discretion. That is another of its strengths. It saves us from confusion, but it allows us freedom of thought. My predecessor would have felt that Gertrude Stein was too modern a modernist for English literature A to Z. And in any case, although she wrote in English, or approximately so, she was an American. <laughs> <laughs> and she lived in Paris. <laughs> she is now dead. I took down the autobiography of Alice B. Topless. I got it into the Mini, and I drove the Mini round to Mrs. Ratlow's. This was my English teacher who was looking after me. <coughs> I didn't go in for a while, and I could hear her shouting at the boys. I looked in through the kitchen window of the neat little house. The huge, hulking boys were eating their supper, and Mrs. Rattler was ironing and reading Shakespeare from a music stand set up by the ironing board. She'd taken off her polyester jacket, and she was in a bright nylon blouse with short sleeves. 
Her arms were fat and dimpled. Her chest was wrinkled and slack and fleshy and red. She was everything Nabokov loathed. <laughs> her eyes were bright, reading Shakespeare. And every time she finished ironing one of the huge hulking shirts, she stopped turning the page, hung the shirt, and got another from the pile. She was wearing fluffy slippers, pink on the black and white liner. She was giving me a chance. Winter was coming, and it was cold sleeping in the mini. And the condensation from a night's breathing meant that I woke up with drops of water all over me, like a leaf in the morning. I had no idea whether any of what I was doing was the right thing to do. And I talked to myself all the time out loud, debating with myself the situation. They were good things. I wasn't living at home anymore, and I had my books. I got out my key and I rang the bell. One of the huge hulking boys came to the door, and Mrs. Rattler came out. Help her with her things, you two. Do I have to do it all? I had a tiny room that looked over the back fields. I put my books in piles and folded my clothes. Three pairs of jeans, two pairs of shoes, four jumpers, four shirts, and a week's supply of socks and knickers. Is that it? said Mrs. Rattler. Well, there's a tin over and some crockery and a camping stove and a towel and a sleeping bag, but they can stay in the car. Oh, and I've got a hot water bottle and a flashlight and shampoo. All right, then. Now get some jam and bread and go to bed. She watched me as I got out Gertrude Stein. Yes, she said. <laughs> Gertrude and Alice are living in Paris. They're helping the Red Cross during the war. They're driving along in a two-seater Ford shipped from the States. Gertrude likes driving, but she refuses to reverse. She will only go forward because she says that the whole point of the 20th century is progress. <laughs> the other thing that Gertrude Stein won't do is to read the map. Alice Toklas reads the map, and Gertrude sometimes takes notice and sometimes not. It's going dark. There are bombs exploding. Alice is losing patience. She throws down the map and she shouts at Gertrude, This is the wrong road! Gertrude drives on. She says, Right or wrong, this is the road, and we are on it. <laughs> you can get your head for me into all sorts of surprising places, like you. So everyone, uh, time to open it up to you. Uh, we have the roving microphone. So, is there just one of you? Yes, there is. So you're going to be running around for a lot. But um, up there. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, my name is William Wong. Um, I am a social entrepreneur. I am a CLAW fellow and also a, a former visiting fellow here. Uh, first of all, let me say, uh, if laughter is the best medicine, I don't remember going to any health or medical events with so much laughter. So it's some, something to think about. Um, I'm fascinated with David's uh, earlier analogy about this Copenhagen marble bridge, maybe a longer one. And I want to focus on the word and arts and health. I've been following the, uh, the NHS reforms, the very controversial health social care bill for a year now. Um, no one has ever mentioned arts and culture. It's all about politics and economics, insofar as they're really important. 
And I think there's something missing in this narrative because by being here, we're sort of self-selecting audience. We already understand there's a connection. And you all earlier alluded to there's a difficulty in, in getting across. You know, where's the evidence? Where, where's the quantifiable benefit? And I wonder whether there are, just like Jeanette is saying, the new ways of measuring things and also about, I think, new ways of constructing stories. I think there's a lot more to be said about how we communicate with each other before you could even sell it to the politicians. Because until I think the, the health um, professionals on the same page as artists or arts <coughs> managers, it's really difficult to sell it to third parties. And that's just my observation. I wonder you know, what you might uh, want to share on this. I think it's hugely important. Dave, would you like to respond? Well, well um, without getting into the politics of the NHS reforms, uh, one thing I would say is that uh, some very positive things about public health reform are being drowned by all the discussion about health care reform. And that potentially is an area where you could think much more about much more holistic approaches to thinking about health and well-being, including the arts. It, I think it's always ironic that we talk about the art of medicine, and yet art as a, as a, as a mechanism in health, it, it, it always suffers because, again, it comes back down to this issue of evidence. Can you do these randomised control trials? Is the randomised control trial the only way in which you generate evidence to, to demonstrate something's worth doing? And I don't think it is. I mean, there are, there are many other forms of evaluation that could be used. That's not to say randomised control trials don't have a place. They absolutely do. But we also have to think about the other benefits from arts and health. If there's a health benefit, that's great. But there are also other positive benefits as well. So it seems to me that it's not an either-or situation. It's something we can do together. But I agree it's about communication. And w when I came into this room today, I felt sort of a bit out of place in this economist, costs, money, you know, art, health. You know, even though I've been looking at this area for a while. And it, it's breaking down those kinds of barriers. But I do think it is a question of actually people working in the area of arts, like Jane's been talking about, actually turning these into, into numbers and mechanisms that healthcare commissioners actually understand as well. Because whether we like it or not, if you can demonstrate that there are benefits to healthcare systems as a result of investing some money in arts, I think that will open up the door more to arts. So, so, so but the, the language issue is a very important one. Jane, Jeanette? Um, well, I'd say um, in the borough of Wirral on Merseyside, which some of you may remember had a very big libraries problem two years ago when they tried to close half of their public libraries and there was a massive national outcry and a big inquiry. Um, in that borough, we are funded to the tune of £100,000 a year through a public health budget. Um, at the same time as libraries are closing. There's something, it's very interesting, but I do think that there should, I mean, I think there needs to be conversation between lots of different parts of the, the public economy because it does seem odd that, you know, that the very council that is closing those libraries is also with its public health hat saying, oh yes, but please do read poetry to people with dementia. Because Jane, money. I think you're, a, you're very much in the vanguard about all of this. I think a lot of arts and health organisations have really come at it from the point of view of, we want to make art, so it's a kind of supply side, doing it to health, rather than where you're, I think, is so powerful, is that, yes, you came out of the 
the English department of Liverpool, not that some health department, yeah. but you've really tuned into some health problems which, where there are needs which have not been met, mm -hmm. and you're making that difference. I would add that I think we have to engage with this research approach that goes on in health. In other words, you know, we have, we're not going to get it automatically right that we can come up with ways specifically for arts interventions in health and we can put, say, randomised control trials to one side. Incidentally, there are, I mean, there's, there's been a very good one recently down in Kent yeah. about um, uh, older people and singing and joining what are called silver song clubs. And yeah, it was a randomised control trial, but you don't see many of them. But I think we have to engage with it. Did you want to come, Jeanette? Only that it's much better to let people to be human than to try and persuade us that that isn't what we want to be. I mean, people like, you know, when the kids are born, there's not been a little kid yet born on this planet anywhere um, that doesn't want to paint a picture, sing a song, hear a story, tell a story, do a little dance. You know, kids love the arts. We, all, we are all born wired for artistic and creative endeavour. And then we knock and it scientific yeah. and we knock that out of them. Yeah, we don't <laughs> knock that out of them though. We then take it away and then say, how amazing that singing makes us feel better. How amazing <laughs> that, that <laughs> painting makes us feel better. When we know full well that that's what makes little kids feel better. And it, it, they're born feeling better <laughs> if we give it to them. So that's what I mean about why is it so, so difficult to work out what it means to be human. We, can't, we become more inhibited by the older we get and it's, it's more difficult to yes. find those expressions. But I think that's to do with the way that we're socialised and educated largely. I don't think it's to do with any natural process in ourselves. No. Let's have another question. Um, here we go. <coughs> I, just, I just wanted to ask something of myself. Well, until the age of 54, about 54, I never thought I could put a, a couple of lines to rhyme together. And since I started, I started opening up. Uh, after working for 13 years for brain, brain surgeons and I chucked it in and then I started being creative just and I can't stop writing whatever I write and you'll probably get get an email from me which will be in rank <laughs> they are not brilliant but anyway do, do any, have any of you written rhymes, poems or whatever <coughs> Janet you probably no no it's a, it's a lovely thing to do. It's, it's, it does help. <laughs> I'll believe you. Thank you. Who, who else would like to come in? Uh, on the corner there. Hello. Um, I'd like to ask um, Tim and Jane if they could say a little bit more about the um, arts-based interventions. I'm currently studying for a master's degree in applied positive psychology and believe me psychologists can be equally sniffy about arts and the arts projects which I'm trying to this is what I'm trying to to do it you know in my my master's study next year um, but I've found a huge difficulty there's some University of London uh, a few sort of old interventions but there's really not much that the psychology world or the scientific world would accept as viable as an intervention as an intervention <coughs> Maybe this is quite a modern way of talking about it. Because when I was first introduced to arts in health, it was about 30 years ago in Manchester, and there was a wonderful visual artist who led an arts in health team there. And what blew me away was that he had gone into a, an, a large bare x-ray room where children would come in and think, 
oh my God, where have I ended up? This is really scary. <coughs> and he painted it like a Douanier Rousseau um, uh, uh, painting, so that, you know, you had leopards peering round large leaves. And for kids walking into something like that, it just felt fun and relaxing and a place that you know, they could feel at, at home in. But I think that the idea of an intervention is that you're actually making a claim for an arts activity that it'll, it'll deliver health outcomes. Um, yeah, it's yeah. an interesting one. I, mean, I, I didn't set out to do anything to do with health. I set out to get more people to read great <coughs> literature. Um, and although our statement at the beginning went on rather a long time, the nub of it is that reading revolution. It was people who came to groups who began to say to me, well, I, you know, I, I gave up my job to do this at the university and, and I worked unpaid for, for a year on this, saying to people, how will anybody ever pay for this? And um, people in the group began to say, well, doesn't the NHS pay you? Because I'm bipolar and this has really helped me. Um, they recognised it as an intervention and that's what made me think Wow, if this is, people say things like, I've had everything you can have. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I've still always been depressed, but this is, this is great. So that's what made me think, it, it, in a way, it is an intervention, if you're in using medical language. How are you, I mean, there's art therapy, there's that, that is in the NICE guidelines, isn't it? Um, the and National Institute of Clinical Excellence, it's recognised. So art therapists who do a postgraduate diploma or something, do it, is anybody one? No? Uh, they can practice and they are employed by the NHS. It is an intervention. Literature is more difficult, I think, because perhaps rightly, I don't know, there's been a lot of emphasis on writing, get it out. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm not in any way against it. I just think, I think reading's better. That's more working yeah. in the sickness model rather than the wellness model. Yes. It's sort of art therapy, it's in response to a sickness and illness yeah. rather yeah. than the well-being. Yeah. We yes. Let's have another question. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, a question for Jeanette. I'd just like to know how you felt on completing this book, or was it cathartic or therapeutic in any way? Um, it wasn't therapeutic, but it was cathartic, in that it was, I mean, I was delighted when it was done, but it took me to a different place. I mean, books do take you to a different place as a writer. They, they, they move you forward. That's one of the strange things about them. Um, and I've never been able to write uh, sequentially, and I didn't with this. So it was written simultaneously. The, 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 back, the back story, which is Winterson World, was written at the same time as the late story, which was the search for the biological mother. So I wrote them uh, like that. So there were two parallel lines that eventually met. And it was a great relief, partly because, going back to this business at the beginning of how we, 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 we understand ourselves um, as an unfolding narrative, then I understood myself better, yes. And I also felt that some, some, some things have been released forever and I wouldn't have to deal with that again, although I would probably look at the material maybe in another 25 years and understand it differently. So that was the process for me. Um, but I think Jane's right about there's no point, 
You know, I, I'm a writer, but I'm a writer because I'm a reader. Um, there are no writers who are not readers, but there are lots of readers who are not writers. And so I have, I have a, a limited sympathy with the endless creative writing things that they thrust into mental health hospital areas. And it's, it comes later. It doesn't come at the beginning so well. Um, because if you have no, you, you, you might just feel a sense of frustration and failure if you can't express yourself. And you do need some basic kit in order to be able to express yourself. Some facility with libraries, that comes very quickly, but it comes through reading. Um, and that's why I think it's a very good idea to have reading groups um, and not always concentrate on the, on the writing groups. I think that's been misplaced. I also think people don't really, because we can all do it pretty well, don't we forget the creative part of reading. Reading is the creative, leaving aside food and sex, it is the primal creative act. It is us interacting through language directly with another person's thoughts and experience. It is profoundly creative. Disagree? No, I agree with you. No, I was just thinking about it. I think about little, when we read to little kids and what, what we offer them in that transaction. Um, and, and, and how wonderful it is if that happens to children, and increasingly it doesn't. You know how you never see kids be read to on trains and choose? They've just got their iPad version, haven't they? They're doing something electronic, and their mother's doing something else, which is not to blame the mother. But it, it's, we've got into a culture now where we don't expect kids to read or be read to, and we've just accepted that, which is really sad. Um, and because they're much jumpier when they're playing with their games. Um, but it's something else happens with reading. I mean, that's been measured, hasn't it, to everybody's satisfaction. It's a good idea to take the TV and the computer out of the kids' bedroom, um, and stories calm them down, and games G them up. So it would seem to me to be pretty obvious, moving from that, that if we can see that effect so clearly in children, why do we imagine that there won't be an effect in adults? You know, we, don't, we are porous. You know, we don't suddenly become sealed up units on our 18th birthday. <laughs> Another question. Uh, down here at the front. And then that one there. I've been involved with people most of my life with drug addiction, alcohol addiction, mental health problems, and uh, very often in trouble and uh, imprisoned. Um, and uh, one of the, the common denominators there uh, I've observed more and more over the years is dyslexia and um, uh, I remember in Dartmoor uh, being asked to take some literature in for a young man uh, uh, who was in and out of the prison and, this, and the two prison officers involved in caring for him had said we think if we could teach him to read it might change him and it did <laughs> and uh, then there's a man uh, Bob Turney who for, uh, was uh, dyslexic at school as a child, treated as an idiot, uh, behaved as an idiot for the next 20 years, in and out of prison, drugs, uh, alcohol, was quite transformed uh, by some comments that were passed to him, has gone on to be a great writer himself, uh, and to be a remarkable man to do so very much for others. I just wonder, I mean, it's important that when you are reading to people, but I wonder, if you've thought of dyslexia as an element in mental health and ultimately in physical health and uh, something that can be helped by what you're doing. I have quite a personal connection to dyslexia because one of my children is dyslexic. So at the same time as I mentioned Betty Ramsey facing her death and going blind, 
had a young son in an extremely literary family, um, turning out round about ten to be dyslexic. Um, Betty and he linked up. She would pass on her tapes. That started with 89 Agatha Christie's, but it ended with the entire works of Shakespeare, War and Peace, Anna Karenina. She made him a reader with those tapes, and a lot of, he did English at university, he works at Shakespeare's Globe, he's dyslexic. Uh, it's great, he's a marketing guy now, he has to write very short sentences. He says, what I've always wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we meet a lot of people in the projects who are dyslexic. It's probably much more common than anybody realises. Most movingly, a lady in her 60s who, you know, comes with one of those stories, nobody knew, I've always been stupid, I've never had a job. Um, uh, she's, she's a reader now. Once or twice we've referred people for specialist help. It hasn't really worked. People get into a thing where they think they can't be taught. What can happen in getting to reading groups is you can just, like the man who sat staring at the wall, not looking at the book, you can just listen. And that works, you know. So it's a big thing. I'd like the name of the man you mentioned. You said the guy had written a book, books or... Bob Turner. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, thank you. He's, he's, he's got a, um, his website. Okay, great, thank you. And there's that project I seem to remember at, <coughs> at Dartmoor Critical Storybook Dads. Don't you think yeah. that? Yeah, that's a lovely project. Yeah. This is going to be the last question. It, it was a comment as much as anything else. I spent a lot of my time sitting in clinical commissioning group, listening to GPs talking about the kind of commissioning they're going to be kind of health services they're going to be providing for our local population in the next 10 years. Um, and I find a big disconnect between what we're talking about today, which I think everybody here would be enthusiastic about, and where I'm actually sitting. And professionally, I have worked in public health, but I've actually worked for various interesting charities. So probably my um, logic and reason are where you are. But I also observe that medicine in this country, we have a national sickness service. It's governed by very powerful institutions that guard their best interests, controlled by a random controlled trial, evidence-based medicine. And public health struggles to play the same game. And the role of uh, arts and the old world health uh, definition of health being well-being um, is far from the medical model of health in this country. And although I'm, I just wonder how, you know, what we haven't covered today, how you bridge that particular gap. Yes, there's huge, enormous therapeutic value, life-enhancing value in all of what we've talked about today. But that is a luxury from the point of view of where the NHS is. It can't deal with intractable health problems. Mm. And in the last resort, it turns to things that it doesn't understand and tries to call them perhaps interventions or something. I, I struggle with the disconnect. Yeah. Incidentally, and perhaps this is enticing with what you've said, um, the Royal Society, which has most engaged with arts and health, has been the Royal Society for Public Health. Doesn't surprise you at all, does it? No. And they have been great, uh, and they are now there are now arts and health awards run by the RSPH. Um, and in fact, we had a big conference just two weeks ago at the headquarters of the RSPH uh, on arts and health. 
and we were hearing about the you know the public health boards and but I think it yeah there's an opportunity there but Can we I have no illusion such about the role of the local authority because where I sit health and well-being boards are going to be the new thing yeah exactly sitting in local authorities so then you have your county council with its responsibility for clean air safe pavements <laughs> the whole transport world you know health is linked to all of these things um, how you make it holistic Never said, isn't it? Can I ask you, are the well-being boards going to be, is it a good thing? Are they going to work? Don't ask me. Okay. Well, I, think, I think it'll be all right. But what you need is you need people like me and Jane on these boards. No. <laughs> <laughs> the board. yes. the boards are always, always consist of people who think in the same way. They are the true self-selecting groups, all boards mm -hmm. are. Um, and what you actually need is people who believe in something and can explain why it can work. Uh, and how it can work, and be boundlessly, endlessly enthusiastic, refuse to be cynical, um, but also be realistic enough to say, look, this is what we could do, let's have some solutions. I mean, we know now the effect that architecture has on people. We know that you can't stick them in stone and into like locky places from the you know, brutalism of the 1950s and expect everyone to be cheerful or at the top of tower blocks. We've learned these painful lessons really slowly about how architecture affects the environment and how what we eat affects how we feel. We know that everything that we do is affecting us all the time. So there's part of me that thinks, you know, Jesus, how much do you need to be convinced out <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> there <laughs> that if we have crappy lives, we're going to be crappy people? You know, it's, in some ways, it's so simple. <coughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, time is up. Um, others want to come in, but I'm sorry, time is up. I would like to thank Jane Davis, Jeanette Winterson, Jane